We're in James, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. That's page 1013 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. 1013. Chapter 4, verse 17 is where we'll begin. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts to the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. We've been walking through James, and uh, particularly these last weeks have been hopefully tying much of chapter 4 and chapter 5 together in a thought that I think James had in that particular text. And the question I would ask you this morning is, how did your week go? Are you, are you grasping what it says when it says he gives more grace? That was the text that we looked at a few weeks ago in James chapter 4 and verse 6, that he gives more grace. Are they just words on the page or are they a reality in our life? We begin to think that way when we're needy and and, uh, at a place of real vulnerability. Are we sensing that God comes to us by his grace to strengthen us? And to help us, are we, are we praying? We ask not. Uh, we have not because we ask not, the scripture says. Are we asking? Are we realizing that that's what we need when we, when we utter those words, I can't do this. I don't know if I have enough strength. Why am I in this position? Are we, are we stopping long enough to think and he gives more grace? The only place you'll learn that really learn that is in that place of vulnerability, the place that we run away from, don't we? That we try to find every avenue so that we aren't at that state and in that place. We say no to things. You say no to things because of a fear of being in that place. We don't like to be in that place. We run from being in that place of desperation. We all do. We all guard ourselves. We all protect ourselves at times thinking, I'm not going to put myself there. Just not going to do it. And what do we miss out on? We miss out on him giving us more grace. If, if those are only words on the page, and we're going through some cerebral exercise from Sunday to Sunday, we might as well just close up the book and go home. But if we're right in what we're saying, that he gives more grace at the point of desperation, which is defined as that he will meet our needs to tell the truth about him in every and all circumstances. That we will have all we need in those circumstances where we feel utterly without resources to live for his glory. 
to tell the truth about God. I hope we're thinking that way. I hope you're realizing it. You're not just realizing it for the person next to you as maybe they come to you with something and you give them this counsel. You don't just give them this counsel, but you live this counsel yourself so that when you give it, it is good to give it, but not give it in theory, but give it in the reality that that's where you live. And what will happen is people will be drawn to you if you live there, then people will be drawn to you to, to talk about it often in your life. So the question I ask is, how was your week? How was your week? And, and in the midst of that, of, of finding more grace, are we determined to stay in the way of that grace? To stay in the way. That's what we've been talking about these last weeks, that the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So it is incredibly important that we learn what it means to stay in the way of that river of grace coming. That we learn what true biblical humility is and how it functions so that we don't do anything to stop that river of grace from continually flowing to us. That's what these weeks are about. I think that's really what James kind of turned gears here. We've been talking about for three weeks, really, ways in which pride can raise up its ugly head and stop and dam up that river of grace that God wants to provide to those who will humble themselves and live in humility and walk a way of humility in their lives. And one of the ways, the first way, was that we can be in temptation of of self-righteous envy and and kind of setting in a position of judgment on others to kind of build ourselves up to bolster our own prideful self which is always wrong god doesn't want us to do that he says be careful of that don't speak evil against one another brothers he's speaking to them as brothers brothers don't do that Fellow Christians, don't do that. Don't judge your neighbor in a sense of self-righteous kind of judgment to somehow help yourself. And secondly, last week we talked about presumption, the whole idea. It says in verse 13 where it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a place, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Be careful. If the Lord wills, yes. Lord willing, the whole idea, learning that we don't want to live in presumption, that that everything we do, whether we say it, physically say it, and maybe we, as we said last week, you just need to say it for a while so that you think it all the time. Lord willing, Lord willing to understand that if God orders our days and our steps, it is It is, Lord willing, not to be presumptuous about the future, not to be presumptuous about what we're going to do to say, I'm going to do this without any thought of what God might want and desire and how he might direct. It's incredibly important that we don't let presumption rule us. That's a a sense of pride that I'm, I'm the master of my own destiny. Not giving God a thought. And then this morning, we come to this text. The first two, the, the temptation to pride of, is written to brothers. I think, I think the one of presumption 
of, of being presumptuous is written to brothers. Now we come to a text here today. And, and to be honest with you, this is the kind of text that uh, in my own self, I just would pass over. If I were not committed to expository preaching, if I were not committed to, to taking the whole counsel of God, these are the kind of texts that you just wouldn't, wouldn't go through. You just leave them out. I mean, there was not a lot of positive affirmation in that text. I hope as you sat there today, particularly as Western Christians, that if you heard those words, they, they stir you. I mean, he's used strong language. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Down a little later, he says, you have lived in, on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. If you're a farmer, you understand what that means. You fatten those cattle for a day of slaughter. Those are incredibly strong words. So it is incredibly important that we understand the context of what he's writing. I think part of the context is a warning against not letting pride rise up, staying in the way of grace and humility. But the questions, there's really three questions here I want to answer in this text. Is first of all, who are the rich? When he says, Come now, you rich. Who does he classify as rich? Is it all-inclusive? Is it all rich? Is the second question. Is it all rich people? And thirdly, why the warning? Why does he insert it here? I, I think part of it is this idea of pride, but even a deeper question of why. And I think that why will make more sense as we go through the first two questions. The reason we want to ask that why question. So the first question then is, who are the rich? Who are they? Is it us here today, now? Is that who he's directly speaking to? Well, I think the rich in this text, and most commentators would would believe, that he has changed gears here. Up until this point, he's been speaking to believers James has been writing to the Jerusalem church, writing to those believers in the church because he's used on a number of occasions brothers. He's talked and addressed them as brothers. Here, most believe he changed gears. Most believe that he's writing now in the style of a prophet, a prophet of the Old Testament who is pronouncing doom on pagan nations, that kind of a spirit, that kind of a pronouncement as though he was a a prophet of the Old Testament speaking doom on pagan nations. That's the kind of tenor, that's the tone that is here. That's the kind of tone you would pick up in the Old Testament. And, and the other reason that they believe that is because there doesn't seem to be any redemptive option here. There's an, part of the reason this text is so hard and harsh is there is no statement that says, and he gives more grace in the middle of it. There's no call to repentance there. 
as he makes that statement. That was characters many times of the prophets as they would, as they would pronounce doom and pronounce judgment. It's that kind of a tone of some of the Old Testament prophets at times as they pronounce judgment. And so it appears, it seems that he's writing to unbelievers, but a particular class of unbelievers here. A group of unbelieving wealthy landowners seems to be who he's addressing here. Unbelieving wealthy landowners who have been involved in a kind of greedy acquisition and exploitation of those forced to work the land. In other words, these, these greedy landowners are just continuing to, to go out and try to acquire more and more land and at the same time, it's at the expense of people much less well-to-do. In fact, just on the edge, on a kind of subsistence kind of edge. And they are grasping more and more, taking more and more, at the same time, inflicting great pain upon those around them, those that end up working that land and servicing that land. The Old Testament talked a lot about that. If you read in the Old Testament, um, certainly at times the Old Testament can seem harsh. And as we said, sometimes prophets spoke doom. But one of the things that the Old Testament law did, as you read it, had a real understanding of the poor. And there was a place placed in it to care for the poor. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Most people don't necessarily... Read Leviticus every day, the law. But in Leviticus chapter 19, if you have your Bible, in verse 9, let me just read a little bit of that idea of how the law protected the kind of people that these wealthy, rich landowners were oppressing. It says in verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then if you turn over to chapter 23 and verse 22, you read again some of that same kind of of understanding. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings After your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. There was a sense of care for the poor. God had a heart, as we talked about in the first part of James, a heart for the poor. And this was for them, that those things that dropped, those grains that dropped, the fruit that dropped would be for those who needed it to live day by day. And, And this doom is those Old Testament prophets coming against and speaking doom upon those who were failing to understand that, failing to care for the poor, not only not only just care for them, but they were actually extracting great havoc in their lives as they came after them in these regards. There's another chapter in chapter 25 where it talks about the year of Jubilee, the Jewish year of Jubilee. In verse chapter 25 and verse 17, it says this, you shall not wrong one another but you shall fear the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not wrong one another. 
in regards to land and acquisition and all of those kinds of things. Throughout the Old Testament, there was an understanding and a care for the poor. And what was happening here was certainly not that. There was no care about that, no understanding, no, no one seeking to do that. In fact, they were doing very opposite of that as they were coming against these poor landowners in many cases or just poor workers that they were forcing to work their fields in that regard. Jesus in the New Testament had a bit of this tone in chapter 6 of Luke where he said, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, some of the same kinds of things that James is talking about in this text, some strong kind of language. So the first question to answer is, who is he speaking to? I think he is speaking to unbelieving landlords who were oppressing the people and oppressing them in severe ways. It'll talk more about that as we go along. The second thing that we uh, need to answer then, and really gets answered with the first He's not speaking to all rich. It's not, I don't think, all-inclusive when he says this woe. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. This was a done deal, according to what James was speaking. It was going to happen to these. I don't believe he was saying it was going to happen to everyone who might be in that category doesn't mean there aren't things we can learn from that and need to be careful about. Certainly as Western Christians, we, we want to heed this message. We'll talk about that as we come to the end. But I think specifically the woes of that particular paragraph was unbelieving landlords who were persecuting others. I think that's the air. That's the air, that, that prideful exploitation exploitation that they were doing and grouping that to all rich is the air of things like liberation theology. We don't hear so much about that, but there was a time a number of years ago where they talked about liberation theology, particularly in South America. The idea that that we need to turn to socialism or communism and capitalism needs to be cast away. Some of the undergirdings, the biblical undergirdings that people attempted to put underneath those things came out of texts like this where they would interpret that to mean all rich. All rich. It was all inclusive. I think that's where error can come if we don't understand the context of what's written there. But there were some issues. Some issues that even though I think he was speaking to this kind of exploitation, we can hear some of that and, and need to let it, let it affect us. But there were four areas, four particular areas that it spoke here. First of all, he, he came against them because of the hoarding of riches. The idea of hoarding of riches, primarily at the expense of others. This hoarding, wanting more and more, grasping for more and more. They had plenty, but it didn't satisfy. They kept after it more and more. Verse 3 that we've already written, it says, Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The whole idea of the corroding of the... and the moth eating. But the idea was the idea of hoarding. The idea of, of how much is too much. I mean, those are questions I think everyone should ask. Not just them, but that's what they were 
specifically coming against there. The second thing is he was defrauding, the defrauding of the workers. Look at verse 4 where it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The wages that of the labors, they were holding them back. And why that was so significant and so severe, particularly here, it's, it's bad anywhere. Anybody who's living on the edge and somebody just doesn't pay them is dangerous and wrong. But in this case, it might even mean their very life because they were day workers. And in that culture, in that time, you, you had enough for the day. But the next day, you had to find it again. I think that's why texts like give us this day our daily bread had, had in many ways much more meaning to the people on the day it was written than to us who have cupboards full and refrigerators full. It wasn't the case then. And particularly in these cases, he, they were defrauding workers and they were holding back wages so that they could hoard more. They could have more. That was the inference of it. We hold it back so, cause we don't have enough. We want more. And they were doing things to them that could, in fact, mean their very life as we come later in the text because they lived for self-indulgence. Their life was about them. It centered around them. <clears throat> self-indulgence was at the center of all of that. They didn't deny themselves any pleasure. That's the inference of this in verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury... And in self-indulgence, lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And certainly that happened then. The people lived in luxury and self-indulgence. But, but if you start to contrast today to back then, some of the wealthiest people of that day in luxury and self-indulgence kind of moves right over to much of where we live in the Western world today. We have to be careful in that. That's why I think it, it isn't just a message that they should heed, but there should be some things that we learn in it as well in our affluent society. This, this idea of a society that, that moves toward comfort, where the Western society is built on moving more and more toward comfort. You think of the new things that come about and the new things that are developed. They're, they're all to move us toward a more comfortable lifestyle. And again, we have to ask ourselves, when is enough enough? And places where we need to be careful in those regards in our own life. But that's what was happening. They were living in luxury and self-indulgence. And finally, he says it incredibly strong in verse 6, you have... Condem- you are you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He accuses them of murder. And this is where I think it got serious. This is where it got serious with some of these day workers. Literally, people were losing their lives because of the selfish self-indulgence of these particular landowners and their hoarding and all of those kinds of things. So you begin to see <clears throat> the picture of what was troubling James about them. So the question we ask is, if it's the rich, unbelieving landowners, it it doesn't mean all rich here in this text. It's not condemning all wealth. Then why was it written? Why did James write it? Um, 
what purpose did he have in that? Because for the most part, they might not read it. I mean, probably these are not the people who are going to read the letter from James. The ones to whom it's addressed probably won't, probably will never see it if they're unbelieving. It's the believers to which this letter went to, these admonitions went to. So why? Then the question is, why? That's why some, some, I think a small minority, wouldn't believe it was to unbelievers. That's probably why some of the liberation theology would use that particular text as all-inclusive and use that as their rationale. I think they're wrong. I think it is written to believe or unbelievers. But again, why? Why would you write it? Two things, two reasons I think are here. The two reasons are, are the fact that, first of all, he wrote it to comfort the unbelievers. He wrote it for the sake of comforting the unbelievers. How did that happen? How does it comfort them? How does it help them? I think the way that it helps them is that they realize that a, that a day of reckoning will happen. There will be a day when injustice will be cared for by God. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. That's why we're not to take it. We're not to extract it. It's not our individual responsibility to do it. I think there's a place where the state has responsibility to do that. Individuals don't. God ultimately is the one who will set all of the rights or all of the wrongs right. He will bring about justice. He's a God of justice. In verse 4, it says, the reason I believe this is, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I think that's what the author is saying. These cries that you have had, you who've been oppressed, you who maybe have watched some of your your loved ones lose their life because of this oppressive kind of system that has been put upon you by these unbelieving landlords. There's a day when all those wrongs will be made right. God is not a God of injustice. He's a God who will bring about ultimate justice. And so it was to comfort them. It was to help them, help them to be able to rest in that, to trust in the fact that God would be faithful. And as they looked to him and trusted him, ultimately all of those things would be one day settled, that life is not a random thing, and, uh, and the one with the most toys or the most power wins, but ultimately God wins. I've been doing a study on Wednesday nights with our children up in the children's chapel. And the series says God always wins. And he will. God will one day execute perfect justice. There will not be any injustice that is not reckoned with one day. They will all be reckoned with. The scales will balance one day. Scripture clearly says that. This morning we sang a song about justice. But aren't you grateful for the gospel? I hope when you hear me say that the scales will be balanced one day, that it just runs you to the, to the gospel. It runs you back to what Christ has done. You see, that's what the gospel is about. It's about a God who is absolutely just, 
and will make sure that all injustices are squared. That's what the gospel did. If you're here today and your sin will not one day be held against you, your injustices to people, maybe to family members, but ultimately to God, those injustices will be made right and have been made right by Christ. He paid the price so that there's no injustice. That's the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is how, how God can be just and merciful at the same time. It's all centers in the work of Christ. That's why it is so essential that Christ did what he did. Because in him, those things come together, justice and mercy, and no other place except in him. All other injustices that are not met there are not met in Christ and in his work will be dealt with in much the way that it talks about in James chapter 5. This is the way it will be dealt with. In chapter 5, that's why the words are so harsh. Because every injustice, every injustice will be made right. Because God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. So it was to comfort them. It was to help them to know that. They could rest in that. They could be certain that God would be faithful. In the long term, it would all be right. The short term, in the short term, what happens? What about the short term? In the short term, he gives more grace, doesn't he? To you today, in the short term, he gives you more grace. That's what that means. That's what that meant for them. He gives more grace. That you can do everything you need to do to live for the glory of God and tell the truth about God even in the midst of short-term injustices. God will do that for you. He will provide that for you. He will help you with that. And ultimately, he'll balance the scales. That's why he wrote that, I think, to comfort. I think also there was a warning aspect in it to believers, not just to unbelievers, not to them. In fact, it was... It was past the place of warning, it looks to me like, for these that he was thinking of here, because he doesn't give any opening for repentance. He just says, this is the way it's going to be. This is what's going to happen. You are being fattened. Your hearts are being fattened for the day of slaughter. Pretty precise. But I think there was also a warning in that for Believers, be careful. Be careful. Realize the danger of riches if God allows you to have them. Realize the propensity to pride, the propensity to to have them distort perspectives, the propensity to have you begin to think worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. I think there was a warning here. I think probably particularly maybe back up to verse 13 of chapter 4 where he says, come now, you who say who? Who was that? But 
merchants, merchants who were buying and selling, making profits. God didn't say it was wrong to do that. Just don't be presumptuous about it. He didn't say don't be a merchant. Just live under the will of God. Lord willing, we will do this or we will do that. Consult God in the midst of that. But I think he was warning them as well. Be careful. It had to have that effect. It did for, I think, probably for all of us here today. Maybe you knew that that was written and would have believed that was written to, to unbelieving wealthy landowners. But, but just hearing those words has a sense of warning us. There's a sense in which we need to be careful. One person wrote this. It warned them to keep a healthy distance from the seductive power exercised by wealth. There's a seductive power that wealth brings, a, a kind of false idea of power that it can provide to us if we're not careful. I think there's a multitude of kinds of things that, that could be here. It's certainly, again, I don't think an admonition against all wealth. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 10, we started out like this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So again, he affirms he was writing to both people with less means and people with more means, but, but warning them there. And I think again, here uses this by way of warning. So there's several things, several things I would just quickly say to us that it, I hope it, it makes us think about. I think the first thing I hope it makes us think about is are we, are we thinking and allowing godly wisdom to influence us or worldly wisdom regarding wealth? What, what influences you when you see it or you have it? Godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? I hope you feel the tension. I hope you realize your heart and know your heart well enough to, to ask that question, to check yourself. Is it causing us to walk in humility or is it subtly causing us to walk in pride? Are there areas in which we are falling victim to pride? Thirdly, how do we measure people? How do you measure people? Who has the most influence in your life when they say something? Does it have regards to wealth, success, climbing the ladder? Or does it have regards to other things? What, what are you enamored with in your life? The issue of power and influence. Are we subtly allowing wealth to exert an influence or to think it exerts an influence to others and to circumstances and situations? Think our voice should be heard better, stronger, or somebody else's voice because of their net worth should be more heated than others? Fifthly, are we, are we being a distinct people? Is God helping us to be a distinct people in the midst of even a Western church? Are we distinct in the sense of how we view it, how we handle it, the influence we allow it to play in our lives? 
and in our church and in the Christian community, the broader Christian community? Are we a distinct people that we, we, we are seeing that we don't operate with the same things that the world operates in as far as pecking order and those kinds of things? Do we live at the heart level? Do we ultimately, as we talked about in my Sunday's class this morning, ask what's going on in my heart? Do we really check our hearts in all of these areas that I just talked about? Do we really ask what's going on in my heart? What, what is that I really admire? Is it the rich and the famous? Go back to James' admonition as I close this morning. The admonition in chapter 1 in verse 26. This kind of succinct statement. Go back there with me and we're going to close with this this morning. This really is in the heart of what James is writing and I think lots of the things that he writes around it are just kind of amplifications of this. But let it be the thing that drives us says this, if anyone thinks he is religious, if anyone thinks he really is living in godly wisdom. Let me restart over. If anyone thinks he is religious or has godly wisdom, and then he goes on to say this, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Bridles their tongue, has a real compassion for the least of these, whatever they might be here, it talks about orphans and widows, but the least of these. Is that is that where our heart goes out to the least of these? It certainly didn't to these wealthy landowners. There was no place for that in their lives. It's interesting, the text... Um, that we read as we began this series. We inserted it at the beginning where it says this. So whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin in verse 17 of chapter 4. I think not only were these wealthy landowners guilty of the sin of commission, I mean, they literally were withholding money from day workers that was causing some of them to die, but also the sin of omission. Sin of not just commission, not of just doing it, but of not doing other things. We can be guilty of that too, can't we? To know the right thing and not to do it. We need to to realize that sin is bigger than just what we do. Certainly what they did was wrong, but much of their sin was what they didn't do. They didn't visit. As it says here, the orphans and the widows in their affliction, they didn't care for the least of these. Certainly. And then finally, to keep oneself unstained from the world. To bridle the tongue, to care about the least of these, and to stay unstained by the world. To live as a distinct people. That's what it means to be unstained. Be distinct in a world that is enamored by wealth. God help us. And the answer is, what? He gives more grace. If you find yourself failing this morning, if 
Do you find ways in which as you examine your heart that, that you've allowed things to influence you that ought not to influence you? You've allowed things to give you a false sense of power that you ought not to have thought you had. The answer is he gives more grace. He gives more grace to bridle our tongues, to care about the least of these and stay unstained from the world. And it all centers in the gospel we're going to sing this morning. That simple gospel message. Let's do it in closing. Let's stand together. grateful that you provide a perfect remedy for our blame. Lord, we pray that the blame we have in regards to seeing wealth and seeing riches and those kinds of things in wrong categories and wrong perspectives the ways in which just living in a Western affluent society influences us ways that are not godly. We're grateful that you bear our blame for that. And we ask, Father, not only would we rest in that, but we would be determined to think in godly ways and to treat it in godly manners. In Jesus' name. Father, we also this morning are grateful that we can gather in this place as a people. And we pray, Father, as we move now to the tables that are set up in the fellowship hall, that that even some of these things might be discussed, but other things that would strengthen our souls. We pray you'll bless the gifts. 
that are presented to us, Lord. Give us grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.